1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the twice weekly podcast. Thanks a lot for tuning in. And as ever, we've got a lot to reflect on in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I will reflect on an interesting sequence of political events that I've been monitoring just in advance of recording the podcast. I've been looking at the COVID inquiry, which is interviewing both David Cameron and George Osborne this week, amongst others. Um, The Keir Starmer press conference in Edinburgh on their so-called green recovery plan. And um, many thoughts arise from this uh, juxtaposition and sequencing We've also had, of course, uh, the House of Commons debate on the Privileges Committee report. But I agree with um, Helen the baker who has uh, emailed me, so-called for new listeners, because she bakes whilst listening to the podcast, enough Boris Johnson, please. Uh, she says the only valid theme now is how he was ever allowed to get to the very top, and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again. And I agree, those are really potent questions. Um, but although I got lots of emails about Johnson uh there isn't going to be much focus on it uh in this uh podcast today um so uh yeah it, it kind of it, I found it a very revealing and illuminating uh sequence um before that a couple of notices and then to uh some of your uh emails so just very briefly on the notices front uh, I hope those of you who subscribe to patreon have got the five Final episode of the Troublemakers series. Uh, it was on Robin Cook, and I think um, as I was reflecting on Robin Cook, I kind of thought, what a complex figure. Uh, there's there's a really dark series to be done on premature deaths in politics and the consequences arising from it. Uh, they're obvious: uh, uh, Hugh Gates girl, uh John Smith. Uh, for Labour, Ian MacLeod for the Tories, who died shortly after the June 1970 election. He was Heath's Chancellor and an absolute linchpin of that government. Um, but Robin Cook, the consequences of his early death were, were deep, I think. Um, anyway, uh, I hope you got that, and uh, more to come if you subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. Anyway, I was looking on your behalf, um, because you'll be too busy doing normal things uh, or abnormal things, um, at um, the COVID inquiry as uh, David Cameron was a witness. And as I said, George Osborne to come amongst others from that era. And I found it interesting because it was a reminder to me of many elements of that era. Uh, which have been sort of forgotten about. I mean, Cameron still rightly gets um, attacked by all of us lot and others for the referendum on Brexit. But that earlier period is, has been sort of more or less airbrushed out of history as if it was sort of long ago. Indeed, I think there's a brilliant theme, um, which I might try and do in the normal podcast, not the Patreon specials, on politics and memory. What is remembered and why? And what is very quickly forgotten and why. I was thinking, for example, that um, uh, mostly voters forget things very quickly. Um, and that, indeed, partly to go back to Helen's point, does explain the rise of Johnson. Some of his earlier misdemeanors brushed aside, forgotten about, uh, as he rose to the top. Um, the early period of uh, this long-serving period of conservative rule, has been, in in my view, under-analyzed, really. Um, and yet, if you think about it, the so-called winter of discontent in the build-up to the 1979 election was remembered for decades afterwards. It was still featuring in conservative party election broadcasts in 1992. And they planned to do it again in 1997 before they decided, well, maybe, maybe it has 18 years. It's not so potent, perhaps. Um, So why was that still so potent? But a lot of that early period from 2010 to 2016, uh, part of the Brexit referendum, have been sort of kind of forgotten about. And yet the seeds were sown in that period. And during his session with the COVID inquiry, uh, Cameron was uh, very politely but forensically questioned about the degree to which Britain was preparing itself for the kind of uh, nightmare that COVID brought about. Um, Famously, of course, Britain was prepared for a flu epidemic, but not this one and why that was the case and what I found so interesting was it brought back memories for me of the Cameron leadership uh, in all its um, manifestations. Cameron was articulate and plausible uh, as he always was um, and that plausibility and capacity for language means in a way, I think, that of these various Tory prime ministers um, who have ruled since 2010, he's got away with more because of that. So, Johnson, sorry Helen, I am going to mention him. I actually think on one level, because he is so much on the surface a bumbling, chaotic character, almost by design... Um, the consequences hit Johnson quite quickly. I think it's a myth that he avoids consequences. Uh, they catch up with him speedily. This is a figure who won the 2019 general election, is not in Downing Street and is not in the House of Commons. Um, he's been found out quickly. Um, and everything he does is examined through a prism of deep, wary suspicion. Everything. Um, from the preposterous resignation honours list, upwards or downwards. Less so with this figure of gracious plausibility. Um, And yet I found it interesting as he was challenged about the government's preparedness for a crisis of the sort that hit Britain in 2020, hit the world uh, with the pandemic, um, and he was very quickly on quite fragile terrain. Um, Cameron quite often used Oliver Letwin as the figure to sort out, uh, potential crises, actual crises. And, um, he was one of several miscast figures at the heart of Cameron's leadership. Uh, Letwin was a very charming, still is, very charming figure. Um, And that meant a lot to Cameron. He, He mistook charm and a friendship as a kind of qualification for senior posts at the heart of his government. It was the mistake he made with Michael Gove, assuming friendship would transcend Gove's conviction um, that uh, Brexit was the right course to take. Uh, Well, Letwin didn't do that, although he was, I think, quite sceptical about Europe in some respects. Um, But Letwin was not a practical policymaker. And yet there he was at the heart of everything, including uh, getting Britain ready for the various potential emergencies uh, that did arise in the end with uh, COVID in 2020. Uh, Letwin uh, would have been great as a kind of think tank architect, reflecting on ideas and pioneering ideas on the right, Um, and he was quite a good, gentle interviewee, Um, but... He was placed in the Cabinet Office and was absolutely central to the Cameron Project, along, if you remember, in the early years with Steve Hilton, who went off to um, go to the United States and become a big supporter and advocate of Donald Trump on Fox TV. And it's really interesting with Steve Hilton, because he wore shorts and a T-shirt and smoked and went around in bare feet in number 10... A lot of the media said, oh, this, uh, he personifies the modern Tory party and it's moved to the sort of center ground of becoming progressive. Whereas actually what he was, was a small state right-wing libertarian, um, who uh, again was incredibly charming. I spent a lot of time with Steve Hilton when the Tories were uh, in opposition especially and uh, enjoyed it every time. He was fun and uh, had a kind of zest for life. Um, but wholly miscast as a policymaker at the heart of government. Uh, But Cameron sort of went for these kind of people because they were fun. They were part, in in effect, of his ideological fraternity. Um, But they helped to fool a lot of people, especially in the media, uh, that the Cameron regime, Cameron Osborne, were on the centre ground this uh, much uh, referred to part of the political terrain but never precisely defined Um, they weren't and uh, there's no reason why they should be they shouldn't necessarily be ashamed of the fact they weren't they were on the right um, economically although socially liberal anyway Uh, It's quite clear that the committee uh, inquiring into uh, the lessons of COVID, and that's the remit of the committee, um, are going to probe deep, uh, including this period where Cameron took over in 2010. And the nature of the questioning uh, suggested to me that they were far from convinced that Cameron was, across all the detail, uh, had risen fully to the scale of responsibility. Of course, Cameron didn't know what was going to happen in 2020, but that's the whole point of preparing for various scenarios. And that Oliver Letwin, too, um, had not become fully versed with all the potential crises um, that could erupt in terms of a health global emergency Um, That was one kind of side of the questioning. Uh, The other was, it is already clear to many, uh, including in the Tory party, uh, that Britain's public services had become so run down as a result of the Cameron Osborne economic uh, policies uh, that they were wholly ill-prepared to deal with any health emergency in whatever form it took, whether it was flu or the COVID emergency that erupted. And in a way, I think it is going to be quite a powerful inquiry, this one. It won't have any impact uh, on British politics. And knowing British government's inability to learn lessons and implement the implications of what has been learned, um, it might not have any practical impact either. But I think it's going to be thorough. And I think it's going to expose the degree to which uh, Britain's dysfunctionality can be traced back a long way, way back from Boris Johnson. And the fact that, I mean, it was said at the time, and then we all just moved on oh, you know, the NHS doesn't have anywhere near the number of beds of hospitals in Italy and Germany and France and Spain uh, when there was this fear that the NHS might become overwhelmed. Um, The fact that there was total chaos about getting patients who were in hospital into care homes and uh, who pulled the lever in deciding what the care homes did and who the care homes took and how the care homes were managed, not the government. And so there was talk about, we must learn the lessons from this and have a more coordinated NHS and social care system. None of it really acted upon. Um, But the seeds of this, the uh, vulnerable, precarious NHS in uh, 2020 were a direct consequence of decisions taken from 2010. And because, again, George Osborne is a charming, thoughtful, witty, uh, political commentator now, um, and again, very plausible in his thoughtfulness, uh, cited across the political spectrum. Oh, did you see George Osborne on Andrew Neil's show? He's really interesting about this. And he is very interesting. Uh, um, But that means too, it's been easier for him to escape the consequences of his policies compared to the bumbling Johnson who's blamed for everything. Um, But I think this COVID inquiry is going to root the problems of Britain um, very firmly uh, in a context which goes way beyond Uh, Johnson and his premiership? Uh, And that's important. It's obviously going to look at what happened from the early spring of 2020, uh, when (laughs) Johnson was in checkers, writing his Shakespeare book or fixing his divorce and so on. Uh, But there are deeper questions.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: It was a reminder that this government, on many levels, has got away with things that a Labour government can never do. Uh, I think, you know, a Labour prime minister in 2020 would have been hounded out of office, actually, uh, if he or she had committed the errors of um, the early Johnson period. And I think it is also the case that, if you look at the Cameron Osborne era... If a Labour government had made equivalent mistakes, they too uh, would have been punished electorally at the very least. Of course, Cameron Osborne were awarded with victory in 2015. Sorry, about 20,000 phones and things are buzzing here in my excitement. Um, But that triggered another thought, which was that in opposition, Cameron and Osborne were extremely effective. And one of the things they learnt was to frame a message and stick to it, come what may. So basically after the financial crash, uh, which was of course the global financial crash, they blamed the spending of Labour governments on the crash erupting in Britain. It was nonsense, uh, but it was... uh, Powerful and assisted by uh, most of the British newspapers in putting the case. Um, how quite a global crash that began in the United States could be blamed on brown spending in uh, whatever year you care to take. Um, well, that was never probed deeply. But that was their framing. And that meant that they, in order for that framing to be credible, had to put forward spending cuts to show that they were going to approach it in a different, more competent way, um, as they would put it. And they did. And they went into the 2010 election proposing some real term spending cuts. Uh, They were the only duo of a mainstream party in the industrialised world proposing real-term spending cuts. If you remember President Bush, fiscal stimulus, uh, Merkel up for the fiscal stimulus even though so economically conservative, small c conservative in other respects and so on. But they decided on a course and accepted that course and advocated that course from the global crash to the 2010 election there was no modifying um, it was clear it had huge electoral advantages because it was able to frame brown who was then prime minister as economically reckless um, but it had challenges because they then had to put the case for real term spending cuts and it sort of worked um, not wholly; they didn't get an overall majority um, but they were by far the biggest party in the 2010 Election. Let's now move to Labour. Uh, I watched the um, press conference um, where the uh, Green Recovery Mission was outlined in Edinburgh, Leith, by Keir Starmer, uh, Rachel Reeves, Ed Miliband, Anna Sawa, the Scottish Labour leader. Um, and actually, I thought I thought I was going to watch it feeling frustrated at um, the degree to which ground was being conceded. We have already had the uh, £28 billion commitment watered down a bit. Um, Since then, there have been briefings that uh, the original briefing about North Sea oil not being uh, extracted any longer had been watered down and contracts that were signed between now and the election would be fulfilled and so on. All, by the way, perfectly reasonable positions to take, but were a watering down of previous uh, statements in some respect or another. Um, And watering down and conceding ground can sometimes be necessary and worthwhile, but can also be risky because it can give the impression of a party unsure of itself. And when Labour has so much political space at the moment, with the implosion of the SNP and the never-ending implosion of the Westminster-based Conservative Party, um, to give that impression seems an unnecessary sort of own goal. But actually, this uh, launch was impressive. Rachel Reeves uh, gave a statement, and as she gave it, and talking about the way the world had changed and that there was now the need and a wider recognition of the need for an active state, I thought here was a shadow chancellor who was not just expedient, but had, it's not fully formed yet, a kind of vision for how she wanted to run economic policy. Uh, It was based on what she said in Washington. And for those of you who haven't seen it, I really recommend you read the speech she made in Washington. Um, She calls it secure economics, secure economics. I can't quite pronounce it, which is an ominous thing for a term. Um, But it is based around the idea that nation states are looking for forms of security um, to protect people from uh, global economic pressures whether it's uh, the war in Ukraine to um, all the other kind of things that have arisen with the so-called global market which apparently was just an inevitable force that no one could do anything about Um, and anyway so she spoke and it was impressive Ed Miliband spoke they embraced each other uh, warmly Um, and I think uh, it was not it didn't look fake which maybe if it was fake, if it looked fake, it's always ridiculous and embarrassing. And, of course, he spoke with the passion he has over this issue of the economic benefits as well as climate change benefits of their policies. Um, then Anasawa spoke um, about the uh, situation in Scotland and the North Sea. Um, and, and then Keir kind of was very positive and not defensive in the way he framed his arguments, including on the question of delaying when they started borrowing the 28 billion. Um, He emphatically did not put it in the context of a concession. Um, So it was a formidable sequence and well prepared. And even though they had issues and questions about, well, hold on, if you are going to commit to all the contracts signed between now and the election, the North Sea will be churning out stuff for years after other countries have stopped doing so. Um, and that was obviously one of the consequences of making a concession, but it was fine. it was they, they dealt with it, I thought, well, and it was very well prepared and disciplined. So that's what I came away thinking. Um, now... As I expected to come away thinking, oh God, they're so cautious, so defensive, but it wasn't framed like that. But I do go back to a theme from our podcast a week ago that you have to be bloody careful, being cautious. There are risks in being cautious. Um, and the risks are losing the cutting edge you get as an opposition party. When you have a clear idea, you advance that idea, you match the policies to the idea and stick with it, which is what Cameron Osborne did in the build-up to 2010. Now, perhaps a weightier duo than Cameron and Osborne uh, might have done even better and got an overall majority. But given that they aren't weighty or weren't weighty, um, they stuck to a strategy and it sort of paid off. And I do think there will come a time quite soon where Keir Starmer needs to sit down with all the other people, Rachel Reeves and others, and work out how you frame this whole project uh, in a positive way. And that is it between now and the election. Uh, You just stress the positive. Um, People are aching for change. And if every announcement is, well, don't worry, we're not going to do that. We've had it now on, do you remember I interviewed Bridget Phillipson for the podcast earlier in this year, and she'd kind of recently got back from the Australian general election, where Labour's childcare proposals had really lit up Labour's offer at that general election, which had otherwise been quite a sort of cautious offer. Um, And she was hopeful of the same. well, who knows what the final details are, but it's clearly not going to be a universal uh, childcare scheme. It's going to be more targeted than that. Um, And if all the briefings at a point where the Tories are falling apart in a way that makes the John Major government look strong and stable, to quote Theresa May, um, if they're doing that now, kind of briefing all the time, oh, we're not going to do that, don't worry, we're not going to do that, tuition fees, no, 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 we're going to keep them, don't worry, we're not going to do anything radical on that. Um, in an age where people are aching for change, uh, it can all start to look too defensive and timid. And, and that then becomes counterproductive, they're weighing up every word because they want to win every vote available out there. Um, And the other thing, as I've written in the news statesman uh, this week, uh, you do have to bear in mind what you say now will determine what you can do in power. It can't be like Keir Starmer did with the Labour leadership contest, which will still have consequences for him, making pledges which he then doesn't keep because circumstances change. In the context of government... With all those newspapers hovering and many other forces ready to slaughter you, you can't do it again like that. So what you say now will determine the course you will take in government and the constraints that you have chosen to place on yourself will be decided now uh, with an opinion poll lead of about 20%. So I think they do need to think carefully carefully about how defensive they need to be in ways that are bound to limit what they can do in government. So there won't be a universal childcare scheme if they've ruled it out in opposition. They just won't be able to do it. They won't have the legitimate space to raise the resources. They've ruled out, I heard Liz Kendall rule out a national care service, which the Fabians, I interviewed uh, the General Secretary of the Fabian Society about it on this podcast. Um, That's been ruled out. Well, it won't happen. We won't be joining the single market, the single currency. That's been ruled out, so it won't happen. Words now matter. How far do they need to go in their timidity to win the election? It's a difficult question, um, but it's one that they need to answer, and not always with the most cautious route available to them. Anyway, there's a few thoughts just from me kind of monitoring what's going on. It's a, by the way, it's an epic week politically inflation rate interest rates huge amount going on as i say helen boris johnson a peripheral figure in all of that and now over to all of you with your questions Okay, and for those of you who want to join in, have a discussion, raise a point uh, with the interviews, thank you for those who emailed about the Polly Toynbee. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to read one out, actually, the Polly Toynbee interview from last week and others. Um, yeah, it's great. So it's Steve rick 14 at iCloud.com. And the first question, it's actually more of a kind of point, but it's anyway, it's praise for me. And I thought, well, yeah, might as well read out some praise. It's from Paul McFarlane, who says outrunning today and my thoughts turned to comments made in some of your podcasts about Labour's plans to devolve power from Westminster Whitehall and the shallowness of the tax and spend debates in Britain prior to general elections. Yeah well Peter there's been a lot of that on this podcast and um, you know this wretched pre-election tax and spend debate of course explains Labour's understandable. Caution, if you go on the Today programme, if you're Rachel Reeves, you know, within 10 seconds. But won't there be a black hole in your plans based on current government spending projections in 2025 in East Grinstead on Friday, March the 24th? And if you don't put up taxes, that black hole will cause all kinds of uh, other, blah blah, blah blah you know, it's mad. But anyway, Pete has a very interesting point as he goes out running, and he makes lots of points about the tensions between central government and local government uh, decisions. Um, And he, he says, you may have seen that Woking Council took advantage of the loosening of the central government's controls over local government's capital spending controls and invested in property developments, which have since failed to achieve their ambitions. And Woking Council went bankrupt The capital markets who lend to government every day will assume that the debt raised by Woking will be covered by UK taxpayers as a whole, not just Woking's council taxpayers. The Trust Quarting 2022 budget demonstrates what happens if capital markets are spooked by what they see as unexpected risk to their assets. The point of this is that if Labour wants to devolve power to local communities, they will need to think through how this flows through to the public finances and, in inverted commas, the kind strangers upon whom the public sector depends each day to buy that debt that the government sells to fund public services. Uh, Mark Carney apparently referred to the the markets as kind strangers. Um, It's absolutely the case um, that there is a tension already in Labour's commitment to transfer power to local communities um, and take it away from Whitehall. We've had it again this week from Keir Starmer, who says, in the end, uh, if local communities don't want these uh, wind-powered alternative fuel uh, sources... Uh, central Government will impose on the local communities, so central government decides now I think he 's right if you 've got big projects from the centre, you cannot allow local communities to veto them else you won 't get any big projects done. Rachel Reeves has said the same about housing targets, and it 's true too that if you give uh, local authorities the power uh, to borrow in the way that Woking did, and it doesn 't work, who is culpable um and there are big big risks i always remember this tension summed up in the build-up to the 97 election when tony blair uh, then leader of the opposition addressed a, a big council conference and he said look we'll give you powers as long as you use those powers responsibly and that sums up the conundrum because who decides what is responsible Um, And um, that is the tension that I think will be a running theme of the next Labour government, assuming there is one. Oh, yeah. Now, here's, the, here's some flattery. Thank you very much, Peter. Keep up the uh, running. It obviously stimulates deep thoughts. Uh, it was a much longer email, but that was part of it. Um, Paul McFarlane says, just wanted to say, uh, I listened to the podcast while ravel- running, traveling to the office, or before going to bed. Um, yeah, well, that's great, Paul. There's, there's a lot of activity going on as you uh, listen. And just want to say, I'm really enjoying the interviews you're n- now doing. Yeah, these are the second part of the uh, podcast. Your latest one with Polly Toynbee was insightful and entertaining, and her book sounds uh, interesting. Yeah, it is. It it, it is an unusual book. I say it has a novelistic quality with um, political themes. Um, Anyway, he says he compares some of this stuff with the BBC's political offerings that are so tabloid at the moment and lack depth. It's really interesting, Paul. I watched a select committee interviewing the BBC Director General the other day, Tim Davey. And they were going on the usual stuff about impartiality, and Tim Davies say, "I can't tell you how hard Question Time works at impartiality and all this bland, banal nonsense." When the deeper issue is exactly that—the total lack of depth and the tabloid instinct, which is not even fully thought through—they don't do the tabloid very well. Um, I, I kind of the BBC is in deep crisis. Um, uh, And in in, in a way, I've got a question here from Jeff, who's now moved to West Cork, where he sits having Pints of Guinness and other beautiful drinks, listening to the podcast. And oh, if he's not listening to the podcast, he's listening to the World at One. And he points out, uh, yeah, Sarah Montague was interviewing Chris Bryant about the Privileges Committee report, and um, he he points out some of the dialogue, Sarah Montague to Chris Bryant. So there are very many Tory MPs who are apoplectic at what they see as a stitch up. Chris Bryant, sorry, how many Tory MPs? Sarah Montague, well, quite a few. Chris Bryant, how many? Sarah Montague, well, David Campbell Bammerman seems very angry. Chris Bryant, but he's not even an MP. In fact, he's an ex-MEP. So, as Jeff says, a small snapshot, but uh, very clever if it had gone unchallenged by Bryant. Um, Yeah, if Bryant hadn't challenged it, listeners would have assumed that uh, the Tory parliamentary party was split in half over whether they backed Johnson or not. And I don't know whether that was Sarah Montague giving a sort of false balance consciously or not knowing how many uh, Tory MPs had become disillusioned and quoting David Campbell-Bannerman on the spur of the moment, or because she couldn't think of any others. There were a few others, but not many. Um, but there's a, you know, there was a brilliant piece by Stuart Lee in The Observer on Sunday highlighting Laura Koonsberg, who had to point out towards the end of the programme that Grant Shapps had wrongly cited Gordon Brown's resignation list when he didn't make one, nor did Tony Blair. And uh, she just kind of did it in the most trivial way, saying, oh, there's a Christmas pub quiz question for you. You know, he, he, Gordon Brown, who didn't do a resignation on this? Whereas I can tell you this, if um, the Daily Mail had screamed out or, you know, Number 10 had been complaining about something, there would be a kind of terrified, severe kind of looking, Laura making an apology. Um, it's all part of the mess at the moment. Anyway... Thank you, Jeff. Enjoy Ireland. See you in Edinburgh, I hope. Uh, Philip Guilford says. I'm currently reading Lord Hailsham's memoirs, A Sparrow's Flight. Yeah, good. I've read a bit of that and very readable. And it made me wonder if you've ever thought about focusing on notable peers on the podcast. I know your heart may be more in the world of electoral politics and the commons, and certainly an MP can go on to a career in the Lords. But whether in a reflection on a future Patreon series, I wonder if you have any notable members of the Lords you'd mention as leaving them mark on british politics in the past 50 years yeah and what are your thoughts on lord's reform well to be honest i think it's very hard to leave your mark on british politics from the house of lords Um, but i'll give it some thought philip i mean obviously big people end up in there but they make their impact from the commons not the lords Um, in terms of reform of the lords uh, it's always a nightmare In a way, I think the simplest thing might be to abolish the Lords. Um, uh, But then what do you put in its place to which I pose the question, is it necessary to have something in its place? But I know it brings up all kinds of thorny problems, um, and that's why they've largely been left unchanged. But it's becoming increasingly incredible. And Johnson's, sorry, Helen, I've mentioned him again, Johnson's resignation honours list. Where complete non entities and undeserved figures have ended up in the Lords for the rest of their lives, uh, I think is a real nail in the coffin of that chamber as currently constituted. Um, thank you. And uh, oh, yeah, I'll be making my inaugural trip to the Edinburgh Fringe this year. So looking forward to seeing you for the first Yeah, oh, well, see you there, Philip. Uh, you'll love it. Philip also recommends us to go and see. Tony Blair the rock opera I've seen it already actually in London and it is a laugh if you want to laugh Um, but rock and roll politics live at Edinburgh is a laugh and full of collective insights too anyway see you there Um, and uh, yeah Sean Farrell Says so you were talking about interviewing a couple of economists on this week's podcast. You should talk to Simon Wren Lewis from the FT. He's been fuming about what he calls media macro, the press's simplistic reporting of economics for years. I know he has, Sean, and it's a good uh, tip. Um, and I will, uh, someone else, Tim Bale said, I should interview Simon Wren-Lewis. So the bid's going to go in after this uh, podcast. So yeah, it, it's a good idea. And the reporting of economics and tax and spend in particular will be driving us bonkers for uh, months and months to come. And that's why I have sympathy with uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves as they navigate this uh, torrent. But To go back to my spiel earlier, caution can be risky. Uh, It's it's an art form, politics, especially in opposition. And part of the artistry is recognising when to be bold, when to put the case, frame the case in a way that's accessible, powerful and popular, stick with it, put in policies that make sense of that case. Um, And that hasn't always been the route followed anyway look thank you so much um uh, as philip mentioned uh, edinburgh f- uh, fringe rock and roll politics live every day from august the 13th i think that's the sunday august the 13th all the way through to the end a uh, kind of different show each day and uh, thank you so much for listening please if you like it please leave a review because that pushes up the chart there's a real battle going on in these podcast charts um and yeah let's get together very soon to continue making sense of it all. Thanks a lot. Bye.